So he comes on a white horse, just as the Prince of Peace comes on a white horse. But this is not Jesus. This is the devil's man. This is the Antichrist himself. He will come and offer a peace plan to the world. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, and we've begun to unravel the seven-seal scroll that is introduced in chapter 5. We've seen that the seals contained in this book reveal one prophetic truth after another as they are sequentially broken in the unraveling process. We've already seen the breaking of the first seal at the beginning of chapter 6, which introduced us to the white horse of deception, which will be ridden on by the Antichrist. Today, we move into verse 3 of chapter 6 as we witness the red horse, which will signify war. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 6 as we continue our study of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic schedule is the rapture of the church. But after the church is raptured, after the church is removed, a seven-year period will begin on earth known as the Great Tribulation Period. Revelation 6 through 19 unfolds many of the events that will take place during that time. And as we read and study through those chapters, it is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that you might think I'm exaggerating until you read it for yourself. And of course, Jesus, who never exaggerated, who is the truth, speaking of this time frame, said this, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It is a time that is unprecedented in human history. I mean, you think about what Jesus just said, a time unparalleled in human history. Never been a time like it, never will be again. You think about all the holocausts, all the famines, all the diseases, all the earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, wars. You put them all together, and Jesus said it doesn't even begin to compare. Anything that has taken place since the inception of time when God made Adam and Eve doesn't even begin to compare with what we are going to read. Speaking of this future time frame, Daniel was told by Michael the archangel in Daniel 12, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking of the Jewish people, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So we have started Revelation 6 last week, and what we will learn in Revelation 6 all the way through the 19th chapter describes really some unspeakable horror. Now, if you're new, let me just briefly say that the theme of the book is found in Revelation 1-7, that Jesus is coming again, that he is coming with the clouds. And the outline of the book, so that we would not misunderstand it, God gave us within the book in Revelation 1-19. Therefore, he says, write the things which you have seen. That's the past. And he records that in chapter 1 of the glorified Christ. Write the things which are, that's the present. And so he writes about seven churches that were in existence in his day so that the church throughout time could learn from it. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. 
So beginning in chapter 4, he writes of the things that will take place after these things, after, way out there in the future. And just so we could not miss the change of subject, when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, you come to the after these things part of the book. And twice over in the same verse, he repeats it. After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. We studied that. God opens a door, and he lets the church in. We call that the rapture, the catching up, the harpazo. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so we saw it is not by accident that the 24 elders who are representative of the entire church are there in heaven praising the Lord. And the seven churches are never mentioned again in the Revelation. All of the saints that we will read about between now and the 19th chapter until Jesus comes back with his church are tribulation saints, people who are saved during the time of the great tribulation. And so the rapture, the catching up, and the second coming are two distinct events. First, he catches us up off the earth. The word rapture is from the Latin Bible that was used for over a thousand years of church history. God will catch up his people. We will meet the Lord in the air, Paul will write. The second coming is an entirely different event, seven plus years later, where Jesus literally, physically, actually descends to the very mountain he ascended into heaven from, the Mount of Olives. And of course, the angels told the apostles that and those who were present that day. And of course, the prophet Zechariah writes of the same thing. And then, when the second coming happens, a glorious time is going to unfold upon the earth. But right now, in the fourth and fifth chapters, we see the saints of God, along with some other people, who are in heaven praising and worshiping the Lord. Uh, heaven is filled with the praises of God in chapter 4 as God the Father is about ready to judge the earth. But remember, the Scripture says all judgment has been given to the Son. And so He has in His right hand a scroll, and He's about ready to hand it to God the Son, the Lamb of God. Chapter 5 signals a change for us in five one, I saw on the right hand of Him, that's the Father, who sat on the throne, a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And so in chapter 5, we found the Apostle John weeping because of this seven-sealed scroll. We read in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who? Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Any first century reader would immediately understand what a seven-sealed scroll was, and we studied that. It was a very special document. It's what we might call a last will and testament. And God the Father holds in His right hand the last will and testament, the title deed, so to speak, of the earth. God originally designed for Adam to rule and reign over the creation. But because he listened to the voice of the evil one, he lost that authority. And so Satan now in the New Testament with a small g is called the God of this world. And so when he offers Jesus in the temptation in Matthew 4, Luke 4, all the kingdoms of the world, if he would bow down and worship him, that was a legitimate offer. Satan temporarily has control. Adam lost the farm, so to speak. And so for someone to be able to take the scroll and to reclaim the creation, he must be worthy. And there's only one who is worthy, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. And with his own blood, 
Not only did He redeem you, but He bought back the title deed to the world. Adam lost it. The second Adam will reclaim it. And so in chapters 6 through 19, we see the events unfolding in which Jesus will come back to the earth and claim the title deed. Now, it's very important that you understand the structure of the revelation or it becomes a little confusing to you. So let me kind of give you some forward thinking and you're thinking, people, you'll see it for yourselves as we work through the book. Here's a diagram of the seven-sealed scroll. We saw this was no ordinary scroll. It was sealed in seven different places, not all across the outside, but a seal would be broken, truth would be revealed. Another seal would be broken, truth would be revealed. And so we will see first in the four, first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first comes on a white horse. The second seal is broken and a red horse comes. The third seal, a black horse. The fourth seal, an ashen horse. Then when the fifth seal comes, we will see martyrs, people who are butchered, beheaded literally during the time of the great tribulation period because they refuse to take the mark of the beast and they say Jesus is Lord. Then in the sixth seal, there's some cosmic changes. By the way, this four and three combination is not by accident. We will see the same thing when we come to the trumpet judgments. We'll see four trumpet judgments that are brought together and that will be followed by another three specialized judgments. And then between the sixth and the seventh seal... There's a pause. You read of that pause in Revelation chapter 7. There's 144,000 Jews who are miraculously converted. They become the Billy Grahams of the day. They preach the gospel to the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom shall go to the ends of the earth during this time. What Jesus said is going to happen will be fulfilled during this time frame. There is that pause. God gives us a chance to catch our breath, as it were. And then the seventh seal is broken. And in the seven seals are contained seven trumpets. And so you can see in this next diagram, the seven trumpet judgments. And again, they are broken into four and three. The last three are the three woe judgments. So trumpets one, two, three, four, five, six. Then there's a pause. We'll come to the 10th chapter. We'll see the angel with his little book and why that is important and critical. We will see the two witnesses who will preach the gospel and their miraculous powers that will associate that. And then when you come to, uh, after that pause, you have the seventh uh, trumpet, and in the seven trumpets are contained seven bowls. And again, we'll see the same pattern with the bowl judgments. All right, that's important. So these don't happen all at once. They happen consecutively. And they will get worse and worse and worse because they are like a woman in labor where the labor pains become more and more intense, closer together, and then full labor takes place. When you come to the seventh trumpet, it seems rather dramatic. Let me read what happens in 11.15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. You may think, well, the book should end there. But that statement is made because unlike the seals where we are revealed a piece at a time, When the seventh seal is open, they will be able to see all seven trumpets and all seven bowls and the implications of them that will bring in the kingdom of God and what God precisely promised. And so the seventh trumpet will chronologically bring in the second coming of Christ. And so uh, here's kind of the big picture. Uh, If you read both Daniel 
And the revelation clearly, again, the open door happens, the rapture takes place, and there's a space of time. This is not done schematically in terms of time. We don't know how big a space that is. But based on what Jesus gives in the opening verse of the revelation, it's very fast. Maybe it's hours. Maybe it's a few days. Maybe a few weeks. But the church is removed, and a short time later, a one-world leader comes on the scene. And his name is the Antichrist. For three and a half years, Israel is protected. An event takes place right in the middle of the seven-year period. Jesus quotes this event from the prophet Daniel. He puts it right in the middle of the seven years. So it's no mystery how Jesus understood the prophet Daniel. It's called the abomination of desolation. And when that event takes place, the trumpet and bowl judgments happen. So the seven seal judgments happen in the first half of the tribulation. When the seventh seal is open, the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowls that will lead to the battle of Armageddon. Israel is persecuted during this time and it culminates with the second coming of Jesus from heaven. Now, these first four seals are popularly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And with each seal that's broken, there's a horseman. We remember the four living creatures that we studied? They were a special class of angels known as cherubim. And so with the first four seals, a living creature comes. Creature number one breaks seal number one. Creature two, seal number two, and so forth through the first four seals. And God describes using the imagery of a horse to help us understand what is going to unfold. Now, I told you before that one of the reasons that the revelation is difficult to understand is because 300 of the 404 verses are from the Old Testament. And it never once says, well, this is what Zechariah chapter 1 says, or this is what David said, or this is what Isaiah said. It's just woven through. And it's a beautiful weaving because it takes all of the prophecies to the Old Testament through all these various prophets, some of whom you don't know what time frame they are referring to, and God puts them in chronological order. And so if we are to understand the revelation, two critical things. One, we have to understand the unconditional promises God made to Israel. And number two, we have to understand our Old Testament. So this theme of four horsemen actually comes from Zechariah chapter one, where there's Persian rulers who send out these horses to purvey, to, to, to review the king's kingdom. Well, God now sends out four horsemen, not just across some small geographical area, but across the planet to, to review what is going on in God's kingdom for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this chapter refers to a book as the NASB and the King James renders it. But if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, you will see out in the margin, it will say scroll. And that's really maybe a better way to translate it because this is not a book like you would think of it today. Today, you technically have what we call a codex. A codex is a book that's bound with pages. But at this time in human history, codexes were virtually not found anywhere. In fact, codexes don't become popular until about the third century. And from the third century to the Middle Ages, books that are bound together in pages are called codex. And that's an important term for you to know because sometimes you are going to be reading a commentary and it's going to refer to a codex or codices, plural, and they're referring typically to books between the third century and the time of the Middle Ages. 
But the codex was revolutionary, much like the printing press. And codexes were initiated by born-again Christians. They came up with the great idea that we should put them together and bound them together to protect God's Word. And so God uses born-again Christians not only in the development of books, but ultimately in the development of the printing press. And so this is really a scroll. And the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is given the scroll. Look at chapter um, uh, 6 and verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come, I looked... And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, we discovered that this was the Antichrist, and we studied this man in Daniel chapter 9. He's called the prince who is to come. And we learn that he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel. So he will come as a man of peace. And so he is pictured and described here as having a bow, but with no arrows. It implies that he will go to conquer the world, and he will use the threat of war, but there'll be no bloodshed. And so he comes on a white horse, just as the Prince of Peace comes on a white horse. But this is not Jesus. This is the devil's man. This is the Antichrist himself. He will come and offer a peace plan to the world. Think about it. Millions of Christians are suddenly gone. Consider all the turmoil that that will bring across the planet. Whether it's car accidents or plane crashes or whatever may take place, God's people are suddenly missing across the planet. And the world is going to be looking for a solution, for a deliverer. And this so-called Savior will come as an imposter. Now, the Bible predicts that at the end of time, most of the turmoil will center around the nation of Israel. It's not by accident that just as God used the Jewish people to bring the first coming of the Messiah, He will use them to bring about the second coming of the Messiah. But what is so sad is now in our day, that's become a minority opinion in the last 50 years. Virtually every, every evangelical 50 years ago would say, no, God's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming. And now it's very popular to say that the church is the new Israel. And there's almost an anti-Semitic spirit that is even feeding the culture. But in Daniel 9, this Antichrist is described. Let me read it to you. Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. It's a prophecy. And by the way, if you weren't with us in our series on Daniel, if you can't review the whole book, you might want to at least listen to Daniel 9. I did four hours of teaching out of Daniel 9. And Daniel 9 is very important because it's a schematic that will guide you through the book of Revelation, especially verses beginning in verse 24. But here in 9.26, he says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war, desolations are determined. God predicts in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, 490 years of Israel's history. And he breaks it down. He gives the big schematic in verse 24. Here's what's going to happen in 490 years. Then in verse 25, he says, here's what's going to happen in the first 483 years. And then between verse 25 and 26, there's a gap of time. 
We call it the church age. God right now is building his church. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel, we saw numerous examples sprinkled all the way through the Old Testament and even through the teachings of our Savior where in a single verse of Scripture or sometimes between two verses of Scripture, there is a gap of time. One dealing with the first coming, the second after the gap dealing with the second coming. And so verse 26 predicts the, the time frame in which Messiah will be cut off. In Daniel 9, God predicts that there is going to be a decree given by a king to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. We know that date. You can look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And then God gives us the exact number of years in days by which Messiah will come and present himself to Israel. It brings us to April the 6th, 32 AD, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. And after that event, he says in this verse that the Messiah will be cut off. It is a reference to the Messiah's death. And indeed, the Lord Jesus was cut off just a few days later in that week. And then he tells us that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy both the city and the sanctuary. So Messiah is cut off. He's crucified. And we know we're in a gap of time just by reading that because the prophecy that follows is something that Jesus spoke of that Daniel wrote of. Remember that time when Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Let me read it to you. For the days will come upon you, upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Messiah is cut off 38 years later. Titus Vespucian in 70 AD fulfills this prophecy. They begin the siege on the city of Jerusalem in 67 AD. In 70 AD, they win. And in the process, one million Jewish people are slaughtered, most of whom are crucified. They crucified so many people, they couldn't find any trees in the city of Jerusalem and its surroundings in order to execute any more people. Uh, a handful of Jewish people were left. In 132 to 135, there's another small rebellion with those who few that are left. It's called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And at that point, Rome comes down for the final crushing, and the, and the government of Rome makes it illegal for a Jew to live in Israel. And at that point, the emperor of Rome, Hadrian, renames Israel. He calls it at that point, Palestine. It's a play on words from one of Israel's greatest uh, enemies, the Philistines. And so they have this word that the, it's a little difficult for one culture to say, and so they, they end up calling it Palestine. I won't go into all the Germanics of it, but anyway, they call it Palestine. And so we have a group of people today that call themselves the Palestinians. There's no such people. There's no such people. It was a made-up word in 1967. And so some people wanting Israel off of their piece of property said, this is our land, we are the Palestinian people. Now, if you've ever read the uh, constitution of the PLO or Hamas, 
be good reading this afternoon if you don't have anything to do. But there's some paragraphs in there that basically say, Israel is our enemy. We want Israel swept off the land and driven into the sea. And you wonder why the Jewish people don't trust the Palestinians, so to speak, as they call themselves, because in their own constitutions, they say, we don't want them to exist. So here's these prophecies. Messiah is going to be cut off. The city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. And that's precisely what happened. Titus comes in. He conquers the place. One of the seven great wonders of the first century world, depending on whose list you're reading, but on most lists, it's the temple. It's absolutely magnificent. Herod the Great began to build it in his lifetime, and its construction went all the way almost until its destruction in 70 A.D. It was breathtaking. And so Titus said, don't destroy the temple. Well, the city caught fire, and I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but the temple was burned. The temple, as God described it and required it, was covered all over in gold. And the gold began to melt in the fire, and it went down between the rocks. And the Romans, entitled to the spoils of war, began to pry apart every single rock to get the gold. And Jesus' word was fulfilled. Not one stone would remain upon the other. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the retaining wall and the temple sat on the top, but you will see many of the old temple stones cast over to the side, and it's not by accident. You have this final rebellion, the Bar Kokhba, making it illegal for Jews to be there. Well, understand, as we move into the 19th century, there are some Orthodox Jews who say God says in his word that we should own Israel. And so some Jews, small in number, began to migrate in the late 19th century to Israel. Here's some demographics in terms of population. In 1880, the first record we have of Jewish people living in Israel, there's approximately 25,000 Jewish people. God uses the evil of men sometimes to praise him. What some people mean for evil, God means for good. Hitler, who's born in Austria, makes his way to Germany, becomes a German politician. He wants the total annihilation of the Jews. And the Jews are not welcomed anywhere. A boatload of some 900 Jewish people, you can see the letter in both the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and in Israel, they're turned away by our own government, by our own president. And most of them go back to the gas chambers. Having no place and no country by which they are welcomed, many of the Jews flee to Israel. And so in 1948, what Hitler meant for evil, God meant for good, there are 600,000 Jews living there. And on May 14, 1948, they win their independence in spite of the fact that they are surrounded by 100 million Arabs. And God reestablishes the nation. Today, there's only about... 12, maybe 13 million Jews on the whole planet. There's 6.42 million Jews living there. And even the anti-Semitism of the last five years continues to bring them. In France, in the last two years, more and more Jews are hated. They're going to Israel. And even in the last few weeks, the Jewish people have expressed their concern over what's happening in Germany. And many are fleeing from Western Europe back to Israel. Is this accidental? No, this is providential. It's significant because God says that this will happen at the end of time. Tomorrow, we'll look at some of the Old Testament prophecies that foretell of the return of the children of Israel to their homeland. 
To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV15, titled The Red Horse of Destruction. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow we continue our look at the Red Horse of Destruction in our ongoing study of the Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Music